Hello, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Hi, yes, thanks so much for having me. I am Dr. Priya Parikh and I'm a clinical psychologist based out of Southern California, California, um, Southern California. Um, I am in private practice and I have actually transitioned my practice fully to online. So I've been able to mm-hmm. see, you know, from all over California. Um, I work with adults 18 and over who are going through any stressors, depression, anxiety, life transitions. I'm also getting certified in peripartum uh, mental health. And so mm-hmm. I really see a wide variety of, of people, um, but most often who, who comes through my door are people who are coping with or having difficulty with things related to anxiety, depression, life stressors, just coping with stressors that are coming up um, within their lives. So I've also been working with a lot more South Asian clients over the last year, which has been incredibly fulfilling um, mm-hmm. and just connecting in, to them in so many different ways. So yes, that's a little bit about me. Sounds great. It looks like you really find purpose in your work, which is always great to hear. Yes, definitely. And what drew you to mental health? It's a great question. So I think it's interesting, especially for South Asians who got into mental health, because it wasn't something that was talked about or that I even saw. I don't think I ever knew of what a psychologist was or a therapist was Mm -hmm. growing up until I went to college. I was pre-med at UC Irvine. And part of my curriculum was to take, um, I took a health psychology class and I would, I loved it. It was just the bridge between, you know, the psychological aspects of health Mm -hmm. and wellness. And I was just so drawn to it. And so I ended up kind of just switching my major over to psychology and just got more and more drawn to the field. And it was a way for me to help people, but in a way where I could spend more time just digging deeper and getting to the root cause of, you know, ailments. And so I specialize in health psychology and that's still, you know, a huge part of my work is really helping people understand Mm -hmm. how our mind and body are connected. And, you know, that, you know, we are so much more than just what our mind is or what our body is and, and really, and truly understanding that helping them uncover, you know, what's really going on behind, you know, physical ailments and things like that. And also chronic illness, right? I mean, with cancer, diabetes, all of these things, so much of it is also psychological, just adjusting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is really what drew me to the field of psychology and kind of continues to kind of uh, be my passion. Mm, yeah, I think it's super interesting, especially because we think of our mental health and our physical health to be so separate, but actually they're so interrelated and oftentimes there's symptoms that overlap or one's causing symptoms in the other. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that, but it's really important. Yeah, and especially within Asian cultures, right, that there's so much of a focus on physical ailments rather mm-hmm. than, you know, what are the psychological impacts of those things or what could, mm-hmm. what else could be causing it? And now I think there's so much more awareness, but that yeah. is definitely new, um, especially again within the South Asian and Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. I think that I've seen a lot of youth-led movements, I think, which are really helping in this cause, but we still have a long way to go. So hopefully it keeps up. Yes, definitely. And then we can start just diving into the movie. Today, we're going to be discussing It's Kind of a Funny Story. And it started off as a book and they made it into a movie. And we'll be discussing the movie today. Do you want to start by just walking us through what the plot line was, who the characters will be that we're discussing? Yeah. So Craig is the main character and he is an adolescent. He's in high school. He's coping with feeling overwhelmed and, you know, really dealing with 
feelings of perfectionism, with feeling overwhelmed with just the pressures of producing, whether it's at school or at home, but just really feeling the, this pressure to succeed and to be, you know, the next president of the United States and things like that. And just really thinking forward in his life and, and what leads him part of the plot of the story is just that he's having thoughts of suicide. He's having thoughts, uh, you know, dreams about jumping off of a bridge and, and ending his life. And there is one night, I think that he said that it, you know, he usually wakes up right before he hits the water and he, he wakes up and he, he's terrified that what if these thoughts of, of me harming myself are real and that I will do something to hurt myself. And so he checks himself into, you know, voluntarily hospitalizes himself. Um, um, at a psychiatric unit within the hospital. And this, you know, the psychiatric unit, apparently the, the child and adolescent ward, which typically is, is typical, right? The adults are in one section and then the adolescents and pediatrics are in, on their own floor. And so in this movie though, adults and adolescents are kind of intertwined together. And so this plot line is really about him being hospitalized for his depression and what that looks like for him. Um, and how he kind of really understands, comes to understand himself and who he is and where these pressures come from, why he feels the way he feels, and also experiencing life and mental illness through the lens of other people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the people that he meets in, in the ward and how he connects to them and really kind of helps him understand his own demons a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great description. And what something I love about the movie is that they wouldn't portray mental health as something to be stigmatized, but rather they were more open to exploring it. I think that's something that's very important in movies about mental health. Yeah, I think that one of the great parts I remember, you know, they, them talking about the, just the different patients that were in the ward, you know, about a, a gentleman who had schizophrenia or another person who had kind of a paranoia. They raised the topics in a way that they were able to to normalize them that, okay, these are mm -hmm. all human beings. They're not, you know, other than, or someone that we truly can't connect to or understand even his roommate who had severe depression um, towards the end of the movie, he really connected to him and found a way to, to, to really kind of bring him out of the room and bring him out mm -hmm. into participation of other people and things. Yeah, it was definitely a very important part of the movie. Yeah, And I know, I think a good place to start our discussion can be about talking about the psych ward since that's where a majority of the movie took place. Yeah, And I feel like so much of the general public doesn't know about these facilities, what takes place inside of them, especially because they seem to be so closed doored. So yeah. do you want to start by just talking us through what a psych ward is and what the requirements are for someone to get admitted? Yeah, so a psych ward is generally just a part of the hospital. So there's a pediatric floor for the, the psych ward for pediatrics and adolescents. And then another one that's split up for adults 18 and over. And they're simply parts of the hospital, right? It depends on kind of each hospital and how they look, but oftentimes they kind of look like dorm rooms or, you know, there's one to two people per room, um, but it's a little bit more casual than, you know, a regular hospital setting meaning that, you know, there's just a little bit more room. There's a recreation room, there's a group therapy room, there's individual therapy. So there's also different, you know, doctors There's psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nurses. There's a whole team of people that are working and usually specialize in whether they're in the adolescent or pediatrics ward or the, the adults. And so that's a really important part of this movie that I think 
could have been delved into a little bit deeper just because he they in the movie they talked about how oh the adolescent ward is you know under renovation so you have to go with the adults and just how different treatment does look before adults versus adolescents just because of the the precipitating factors that are bringing them into treatment to to begin with and mm -hmm. so that's something that is really important to to kind of recognize as well but then you know within the i think that the movie did a good job as far as just kind of understanding kind of just a little bit of the setup of it but again every ward kind of looks a little bit different and functions a little bit differently depending on the acuity they are always locked because mostly the individuals that are in these wards or you know inpatient hospitalization programs are actively suicidal or homicidal, right? Harm to self, harm to others. And so they're always locked. And so the part of this movie, they talk about like going downstairs for coffee, dressing up as doctors, and it was whimsical and it was funny. But part of it is also understanding that part of the safety protocol of being in a hospitalized like that is that it is very strict about who comes in, who goes out. Um, and they're, they have monitors kind of all over the place, making sure mm -hmm. you know they have an eye on, on what's going on. Um, they did a good job about also recognizing and bringing up the fact that, okay, they don't let just anybody walk in um, and just be hospitalized. They do an intake evaluation. They assess, okay, are you actively suicidal? What's going on? What brought you here? And in the beginning of this movie as well, the doctor actually tries to discharge him and says, you're fine. You're actually okay. You don't need to be here. And Craig says, no, I really do need to be here. And I think that a big part of what was missed a little bit is differentiation between active suicidal ideation and passive suicidal ideation mm -hmm. and really kind of helping Craig, the main character, understand maybe what his options are as far as getting help. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe not necessarily the psych psychiatric inpatient program being the best place for him at that time. But again, the movie did a good job of kind of just describing a little bit about generally what that looks like and, and how it feels. Mm -hmm. What could have been some of Craig's other options for getting help? So he could have gone to a partial hospitalization program, meaning, you know, that they, it's not inpatient, it doesn't have to stay there. So he could go to school, he could maybe, you know, um, it, part of it could be a day program. So it's, you know, nine o'clock to five o'clock, they have individual therapy, group therapy, you know, psychiatric appointments. And so it's structured, it's a, it's a program that you can attend and really get the help and the services that you need and not necessarily be on a hospitalized where you have to stay there for a period of time, depending on, you know, and part of it too was he was experiencing thoughts of death and, and again, passive thoughts of death of just, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself. And so I think really talking to a therapist and, you know, also within that intake evaluation, he had said that he went off of his Zoloft, his antidepressant medication three weeks ago. And that's typically what we see is when people start to feel better, they assume, oh, I don't need my medication anymore. And that's actually the, the opposite, right? It means the medication is working. And so it means you have to talk to your psychiatrist or the prescribing provider about a plan or what's happening. And, you know, I would have really loved for him to reach out to whoever was prescribing that medication and really talk to them about what he was experiencing um, and mm -hmm. what his options might've been. Mm, I see. Yeah, I think oh, I've seen several times where you think, I think I've, I heard about the bell curve about when you're taking psychiatric medicines, there's a point where you're feeling really low and then you start to feel a little bit higher. Do you want mm -hmm. to talk us a little bit what, about what that looks like and what's that about? 
Yeah. So part of, you know, usually when individuals start a psychotropic medication, they're at the lowest um, or mm-hmm. at a pretty low point with their depression or anxiety, whatever that might look like. And it takes about one to two weeks to even feel any impacts or effects of a medication. And then about three to four weeks after the start of the medication, you start to notice what we call kind of like a, a balancing out, right? A feeling, you know, you don't want to feel numb. You don't want to feel kind of just like nothing numb. You want to feel start, you want to start to feel kind of an easing of your symptoms, right? It's starting to notice an improvement mm-hmm. in your mood. And what we really want to see is that to continue over a period of time, right? And psychiatrists, you know, different doctors will say different things. I always like to say at least six months to a year, you know, to know, mm-hmm. to really feel the full benefits of that. And if at that point you feel through therapy and other things, you have a good toolbox of co- adaptive coping mechanisms under your belt, then together with your therapist, with your psychiatrist, whoever's prescribing, you work on a plan together to titrate off of that medication, Mm -hmm. but it needs to come from within a plan instead of, oh, I'm starting to feel better. Let me just take myself off of the medication. And so that is something I think is really important for anybody to really understand about psychotropic medication. And also, you know, there's that fear of, oh my gosh, am I going to become addicted to this? Right. Mm -hmm. And again, part of that also understanding that you know, things like a benzodiazepine, like Xanax, Ativan, things like that, that are meant to help us in the moment with anxiety and panic. Those can become addicting, but long lasting, you know, antidepressants are not addicting or habit forming. They are meant to be taken every day around the same time, you know, to have a balancing effect on our brain and our neurochemicals in that brain system. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I imagine if you suddenly stop a medication, there's probably some withdrawal symptoms that you'll experience as well. Yes. And oftentimes I've seen, unfortunately, patients actually worsen in their depression when they suddenly take themselves off of the medication. And so that's why it's so important to, again, work on, you know, a a titration system where you, you really kind of work your way down from that medication Mm -hmm. in a a, a kind of a program or some kind of plan of action. Mm, Yeah. I see what you're saying. And something we also saw in the movie was that Craig was under a lot of pressure from his school, his love life, just the peers around him doing really well. And that put a lot of pressure on him and that led to him feeling anxious and even depressed. And data from colleges and even high school shows that this is something that's also taking place in schools where students are feeling increasingly worse and their mental health is getting worse and worse. And do you mind talking a little bit about what's going on in Craig's and even other students' heads when they're experiencing something like this? Yeah, you know, I think that the pressure that high school students especially are feeling, you know, whether it's outside pressure from, you know, the world and media and just social influences, friends, or within your own family, right? And a lot of that can also become internalized, right? It's Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, it's not even pressure from outside. It's internal pressure. And we see this a lot, you know, with, with students who are perfectionists. And I say that kind of, you know, because perfectionism can be something that many, many individuals experience to a different degree, right? This Mm -hmm. need to achieve this need to be the best, to get the best grades, to be valedictorian, to be, you know, get into the best Ivy League college, but it can also be the person that's just trying to survive and try to make it through that class. And a lot of what Craig was also experiencing was this idea of imposter syndrome, right? This mm-hmm. idea, he, he talked about being at this elite school within New York and that he didn't feel like he belonged. He went through kind of a, a rap sheet of how 
everyone else's demographics and what brought them into that school. Then he looked at himself and he was like, I don't even know how I got here. And that also feeds into that feeling of, do I have what it takes to even accomplish this, right? Do I even have within me what it takes to be here and to be surrounded by my peers who are so um, accomplished and smart? And he talked about his best friend as being, you know, this baseball star and, you know, really Mm -hmm. smart, had a girlfriend, had everything going for him. And towards the end of the movie, he also told Craig that, hey, I struggle with those feelings of depression as well. Just don't talk mm-hmm. about it, right? And so I think that this is such a, a huge phenomenon as well is that individuals are experiencing it and there's this feeling of stigma or this, this shame that comes mm-hmm. with like, expressing it. Like, oh, I can't tell someone else that I'm struggling because they're gonna think I'm less than, right? That I'm not able to accomplish whatever it is that I'm supposed to accomplish in my life. Um, but those pressures are very real and it's so important to really address where those pressures are coming from and how realistic they are and having a good set of adaptive coping skills, right? Understanding that there are so many things that are outside of our control and that mm-hmm. we have the only thing that we can focus on are the things that are within our control and also helping ourselves succeed. The more we beat ourselves up for not being able to achieve something that's actually hurting us rather than harming us. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I thought it was eye-opening the way that they portrayed first they showed Craig talking about his best friend and then at the end they showed his best friend actually making this revelation that he's also experiencing these feelings. And I thought the way that they portrayed it really was eye-opening because it showed that, wow, a lot of us think that we're alone in this or we're the only one, but really it's more common than we might think. Yes. And I think that this goes for adolescents, adults, everybody. I can't tell you how often, you know, that feeling comes up of people feeling I'm alone. No one else gets it. No one else understands Mm -hmm. how I'm feeling. And yet when we start to open up and we start to talk to other people, we realize, wow, I'm not alone. That other, you know, I thought that that person had it all together. I thought that they had the perfect life, right? They have their love life going for them. They have a sports life. They're really smart. And I think for Craig to really understand, wow, okay, part, maybe this is part of the human experience and we can all lean on each other for help and support was very eye-opening for him as well mm-hmm. as I think whoever's watching that movie to understand that. Yeah. And I know I talked a little bit about Craig being on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about what depression is and how it might impact everyday functioning? Yeah. So depression... I want to differentiate a little bit between, you know, that feeling that he, he talked about feeling overwhelmed, feeling like this need to, to just do the best that he can, you know, get the best grades, get into the best college. And, you know, he, he kind of had this vision or this dream of like becoming president and being a millionaire and having this huge house and just all of the pressures that he put on himself to achieve um, and to Mm -hmm. produce and how that really translated to his depression of feeling helpless, feeling hopeless that, oh my gosh, I, I can't do this. I can't measure up to all of the dreams and aspirations that I have for myself. And also his dad was a big part of, you know, that, that external pressure that he felt to, to accomplish certain things and get into that summer program and things like that he was applying for. And at the differentiation between that and depression is depression. When you start to see that it's this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and feeling like, oh my gosh, I just can't do this, right? You start to notice changes in your appetite, whether you are overeating or undereating, you start to notice changes in your sleep patterns. Sometimes mm-hmm. someone is sleeping all day, it's, it's an escape. And sometimes individuals can't sleep at all, right? And then there's also 
and notice a, a significant change in your mood, just feeling depressed, feeling withdrawn, feeling like I just don't want to talk to anybody anymore. And apathy, just disconnecting again from the people that, that you care for and love mm-hmm. and, and overall feeling numb, feeling just withdrawn. Like I just can't do it. I don't have the energy, not just mentally, but physiologically, physically, and emotionally to go about my day-to-day things. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously a a huge part of depression is also those symptoms leading to this feeling of there is no other way out except for to kill myself. There's no other way out than for my life to end right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that differentiation is definitely very important. And how is it diagnosed? What, I know there's a book, the DSM, that mm-hmm. is used. So are there particular symptoms? Or I know there's also a time frame that the symptoms should be showing for a certain amount of time. What does the diagnosis look like? Yeah, so it's about four to six weeks of, of you know, a set criteria. So it goes over, you know, a lot of what I had just said as far as feelings of depressed sadness, you know, kind of looming over the last um, week or two every day. But then on top of that, it's helplessness, it's apathy, fatigue, changes mm-hmm. in sleep, changes in appetite, um, thoughts of harm to self or others, irritability, all of those things. And what leads to a, di- a clinical diagnosis of, you know, there's differentiation between major depression, mild, moderate, severe. You can have psychotic features with, with depression, meaning that you're hearing voices, you're, you know, someone, or there's a voice telling you to hurt yourself or hurt other people, you know, so there's varying degrees of a depression diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to necessarily be diagnosed with clinical depression and meet all the criteria to feel depressed and to have, you know, symptoms of depression. And I think that that's something that's also important when we talk about the stigma attached to a diagnosis, right? Is understanding that for every single person and an individual, you may be experiencing some of those symptoms sometimes, sometimes a little bit more frequently, more severely, but the more we start to really attach a label to them, that's what's creating this feeling of stigma and saying, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, am I really that depressed? Do I really need that much help? Right. But to really focus on how is this impacting my daily life functioning? And that's really what we're looking at when we're starting to diagnose is how is this impacting this ability, this person's ability to function in their everyday? Are they mm-hmm. not able to go to school? Are they not able to go to work anymore? Are they not able to carry out their day-to-day? You know, there's some people that can't even get out of bed and shower, right? That's how debilitating mm-hmm. that depression has become from, for them, that even just the thought of getting up and showering is so overwhelming. And it is such a common experience as well that isn't talked about right? That feeling of just dread, that feeling of, I just can't do this. I just don't want to. And yet that person may push themselves to get up and get to work and put on this face of, Mm -hmm. I can do this. I'm just going to kind of get through the day. And yet they're internally struggling. And so my point in that is that we have the clinical diagnostic manual to really help us diagnose it, but the experience of depression can be on this incredibly huge spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so you can see treatment at any point within that, but it's important to recognize at what point is this really keeping me from functioning in my everyday life? And how can I really start to not just work on surviving, but thriving? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very important. And everyone experiences it differently, of course. And what are some treatments besides medications? We talked a little bit about that, but like what are some coping mechanisms that might help with depression? Yeah. 
I think what what's so important about coping with depression is first understanding what it even is and understanding, you know, and so I always go into kind of just some psychoeducation about what does your depression look like? I always ask, what does your depression look like? And when I ask that, it's how is this impacting your day-to-day functioning? How is this impacting your day-to-day life? And when we talk about treatment options, we're then talking about, okay, what can this person do to help themselves cope? Whether it's um, cognitive behavioral therapy that has been, you know, kind of the evidence-based treatment that we go to within therapy to really help challenge automatic negative thoughts of I'm worthless, or I can't do this. I don't have within me what it takes to even accomplish this, or this is beyond what I can handle in this life or whatever that those automatic negative Mm -hmm. thoughts might be. We really work on challenging them. And then Mm -hmm. a big part of also therapy is pointing out and identifying a social support system, right? Uh, Being able to just talk, right? Whether it's to friends or family or other people that have gone through it, it's so important to have a place to feel heard, to feel seen. And that in and of itself, I think can be so therapeutic in so many ways, because one of the biggest parts of feeling depressed is feeling like nobody else gets it. There's no one else that will be able to see how I'm feeling or understand what I'm feeling. And so, yes, there's, you know, psychotropic medication, there's cognitive behavioral therapy. And then even, you know, again, like I said, within therapies, there's different types. I work also with mindfulness. Uh, Mindfulness Mm -hmm. is a great way to bring our mind and our body into the present moment. I describe kind of this feeling of depression of feeling like all the, I thinking about all the should have, could have, would haves of the past, right? All things that are not in our control, but yet we perseverate on them. And the more we focus on these things that are outside of our control, the more helpless and hopeless we feel, right? Mm -hmm. And then anxiety is this feeling of our body is here in the present moment, but our mind is in the future thinking about all the what ifs, right? And so in both scenarios, we're disconnected mentally and physically, right? And so I work Mm -hmm. a lot with, okay, what do we have right now? What's right in front of us? What are you capable of doing in this moment or even in this day-to-day? And so really helping make make those day-to-day things manageable because again, with depression, it can feel so overwhelming to think about, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, how am I going to go back to school? How am I going to get all of these assignments completed? Right. I've felt bad for so long that I'm so behind on, you know, all of, he talked about, you know, his chemistry teacher calling him, you know, Craig in the, in the movie and telling him he's behind on like five assignments. And so that also can create this feeling of, dread of feeling just overwhelmed. And so helping individuals really understand and create a plan of action of, okay, what's in my control? What can I do to kind of accomplish those things? And how do Mm -hmm. I let go of the things that are outside of my control? And so, you know, especially with adolescents, we're doing therapy, we're doing medication, if that's necessary. And then we're also really working with a family, right? We're working with uh, trying to kind of bring their support system so that they feel supported, whether it's at school or at home, they feel like they're not alone in this and they have a plan to move forward and to succeed and to thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really good support system. And those are a lot of ways to help students. Mm -hmm. And I think something that also scares a lot of students is just a general uncertainty. Our futures are on the limb and the path ahead can seem very unclear. Mm -hmm. And this uncertainty definitely invites a lot of anxiety. Do you have any tips of managing it and learning to be comfortable in the uncomfort of uncertainty? Yes. And I think if anything, this last year has really challenged us in many ways to, mm-hmm. to cope with that. And 
I think many of us, myself included, realized how much we thrive on the need to, or this kind of fantasy of being in control, knowing what to expect. And especially again, within this last year, being thrown curveballs and not knowing what to expect has really provided us with an opportunity, an opportunity to see that we have the capability to adapt. And, you know, I know the word Mm -hmm. pivot, I think has been so, so much of kind of the word that's been used to describe what we've all been doing over this last year. And also understanding that we have the capability to do it, even when we feel like we need to be in control and to be able to predict what the future holds for us. Mm-hmm. We are really ultimately out of control of that, right? We have no control over what's going to happen tomorrow or, you know, what the future might hold. And all we have control over is today. Mm-hmm. And so letting go of that, of that thought of, oh my gosh, I need to know what's going to happen tomorrow or planning ahead for the future, right? Being able to say, okay, I can plan as much as I can. I can do the best I can today to help plan for that and mm-hmm. to do the best I can for that. But I, there is no certainty. There is no way I can mm-hmm. truly predict what's going to happen tomorrow or that, you know, me studying 24 hours a day right now is going to get me a perfect score on that SAT. That's going to get me, you know, into the Ivy league college that I want to go to, which is going to get me the dream job, right? We kind of get stuck in that mindset that if I do everything I can today, that'll lead me to accomplish every goal that I have in the future. And the reality is, is that we are different today than we are going to be tomorrow. Right. And so Mm -hmm. how you wake up today may be very different from how you wake up tomorrow, meaning, you're, we're changing, we're evolving, our needs, our wants, our desires, our goals, they're also evolving. And if we stick to this rigidity and what we expect of ourselves, we're doing ourselves an injustice, right? And mm-hmm. so if we're able to say to ourselves, okay, let me see what is it that I'm truly interested in or I want to do and we start to approach things with a little bit more flexibility, we allow ourselves to breathe a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of feeling like, oh my gosh, everything else needs to fall in place so that my life goes perfectly. And so a big part of this, you know, and I, I know I keep saying it, is this idea of letting go and just being in the moment and mm-hmm. understanding that you have within you what it takes to kind of move through this or to get through this difficult time in your life. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And I love the lens of seeing the silver lining, especially in this whole situation with COVID and everything. Mm-hmm. And I really like that perspective. Thanks. Yeah, it can be, it can be helpful to take a step back, right? And I, I, and I say this mm-hmm. to a lot of clients sometimes that when we're in the middle of a depressive episode or an anxious episode, our lens is very small and narrow. All we see is right here, what's in front of us and the impending doom of it. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes an exercise that I will have, you know, clients do is to take a few deep breaths and take a step back and just really look at the bigger picture. Is this mm-hmm. truly going to matter in a year or in six months even, or even in a week, right? Mm-hmm. And when we start to do that, we start to gain this perspective, this wider lens of, okay, this is just a moment in time, right? This Mm -hmm. moment in time is not going to dictate my entire life. And so when we start to do that, we we start to recognize, okay, these are the things that I can do to help move through this moment. And then this is not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being able to recognize that and step out of this current situation is very important. It can be super helpful. And just yeah. calming yourself down and figuring out what your next steps are, how to work through situations. Yes. Yes. And I was seeing some research on the movie and there were some critics arguing about the accuracy of the time that it took Craig to have gotten better. In the movie, I think it was roughly a span of five days. But however, in real life, I know the times can vary drastically, but usually it does tend to be more of a longer term healing journey. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts about this? And do you think that the ending was unrealistically happy? 
I do. I definitely do think that the ending was unrealistically happy because even when we're talking about someone who is exhibiting, you know, thoughts of, of suicide and ending their lives, that's severe depression right there. And so to say that that can be cured within five days and, you know, a lot of it, we didn't even see, we saw little snippets of, you know, his group therapy and things like that, but we didn't really see him opening up about, you know, how he was going to cope or how, you know, any tools that he was learning to help himself feel more capable. Right. You know, he met a girl within the facility, you know, it was almost like this, this romance, like romance novel, right. Of like, Oh, you know, being in a relationship is going to fix everything. Um, and so it, it's important to recognize that overcoming depression is a lifelong journey. It's something that mm-hmm. comes up every once in a while. It's the coping skills and the toolbox of coping mechanisms that you develop over time that helps you cope with those moments where those symptoms of depression start to creep back up. And so it's not just a one-time fix. It's a lifelong journey of, of healing. And what they're looking for when you're hospitalized like that is to move from a point of active harm to self or others to more, you know, stability. And okay, now we can work from a point where you're no longer actively suicidal to now we can work on really helping you accumulate coping mechanisms to help you function and to thrive in your life. But that again, takes time. It can take years to get to that point. The five-year map or timeline is really about acuity level, right? So we're again, working from active suicidal ideation and working on stabilizing the, the client or the patient to then be able to then get them to maybe a partial hospitalization program or even discharge to saying, okay, now we need you to go, you know, outpatient therapy, go seek a therapist. And, and that'll be a plan of action, right? It's not just, Hey, you're all better. Now you're good to go. Mm -hmm. There you go. There's always a plan of, okay, here's what you're going to do next to help continue this, this process. Um, and I would have liked to see the movie really address how his suicidal ideation really changed, you know, from when he checked Mm -hmm. himself in to towards the end and why and how that changed and kind of developed over his timeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely important to recognize that progress isn't always linear and it can be your whole roller coaster of ups and downs. Yeah. And normalizing that a little bit. And I think that Mm -hmm. I I would love for practitioners to even, you know, help, help clients and patients understand that there is no just quick fix. Oftentimes, especially within the American culture, there's a need for a quick fix. So just make me feel better, right? Make this go away. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I, I really kind of take a step back again with my clients, my patients and help them understand that there is no quick fix to something that's been going on for many years, right? It took you many Mm -hmm. years to get to this point in your life. And now we're going to work on and helping you cope with those things and move forward. But that takes time and it takes work and Mm -hmm. it takes energy and you're worth it. And that this is kind of your, your, your journey now forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And do you have any other tips or any other advice for managing these symptoms? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, something to really understand about depression or anxiety, especially in adolescents and young adults is that it can look so different for each person, right? And the pressures that we face are different than the pressures that the generation before us faced. And especially Mm -hmm. within a culture, you know, South Asian culture, that there is a lot of stigma attached to seeking help. 
to really understand for yourself is, do you want to simply survive this life or do you want to find a way to thrive, right? Mm -hmm. And to be able to truly find joy and fulfillment in your life and what that might look like. And maybe that looks like seeking help and support from the outside and that there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with identifying that maybe you're struggling and that, you know, even if you feel you're the only one struggling, that there's again, nothing wrong with that. And that you are not alone in that as Mm -hmm. well. And there are many other people that can help you to, to find ways to cope and to find a way to find joy in your life that, you know, I think that oftentimes, especially again, within our culture, there's this feeling of like, I just have to suck it up and get through it and just achieve and, you know, succeed and, you know, get a great job, become a doctor, become a lawyer, you know, please everybody else on the outside. And that'll, that's what will make me happy. And as I, you know, even kind of reflect on my own journey and the journey of so many of my clients is this idea of, did, do we ever ask ourselves what truly makes us happy? Are we, li- mm-hmm. are we really, really living for ourselves and our journey of happiness and joy? Are we like, meeting the expectations of everybody else around us? Because that is really when we can start to feel really disconnected with our needs, wants, and desires versus the needs, wants, and desires of other people around us. And of mm-hmm. course, that's not easy, right? Because again, with culture comes this idea of respect and, you know, the, the topics of respect and, and within, you know, who's allowed to do what, especially with males, females, you know, all of this really plays a role in how we internalize our journey, our struggles. And so I guess a big part of this is, is really wanting, wanting everyone to really understand that life is not meant to be this perfect linear journey forward where we just keep accomplishing goals and, you know, move on this like great trajectory forward that life is full of obstacles of ups and downs. It's how we maneuver through them and around them Mm -hmm. that really builds our character and our resilience and, and builds who we are. And that's truly what life is about. It's not about kind of just coming over, jumping over hurdles over and over again. Yeah. There's definitely no clear-cut answer to how to deal with all the situations, especially with a new generation here in a different country. It's that a lot of figuring new things out and learning your place in the world. But I think as long as we continue just having these conversations, checking in with ourselves and being really true to how we're feeling, and those that's probably a step in the right direction. Yeah. And talking about it. Right. And I think that this mm-hmm. is why, you know, this is so great is the more we talk about this, the more, the less people will feel alone. And mm-hmm. I think that that in and of itself is going to lend itself to, for people to seek help and to seek support from the outside is recognizing, oh my gosh, there's all the people that feel this way, right. That I'm not alone in this and that I can mm-hmm. get help and that it's okay. And so I love this platform. I love being able to help, you know, really break the stigma around just mental health and what that looks like. Yeah. Thank you so much. And that you learning about it is super important. The more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes and hopefully it can foster more conversations beyond this. Yes, definitely. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. I know I definitely learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was so nice to talk about this in this platform. So yes, thank you. thanks again for having me. Thank you. And I can stop the recording.